0: that industrial design needs to develop a better vocabulary for communicating with researchers. It's very unusual for design program to have a course in, uh, for example, statistics.
1: everyone, thanks for tuning into Notes of Design to help support our mission spread knowledge. We have a very special guest on today's episode. It's with a great honor. Let's welcome Charles L. Mauro, who is a president and founder of Mauro Usability Science, a New York based consulting firm founded in 1975. Mr. Mauro is a certified human factor engineering professional, and he has personally managed over 4,000 research and development projects over his 40 years career as a leading expert in human factor engineering, product design and design research. He had had received numerous awards and citations for design and design research, including the Industrial Designers Society of America has given its highest recognition, the Personal Achievement Award. Historically, the award has been given to leading design luminaries, including Sir Jonathan Ive of Apple, Raymond Louis, Henry Dreyfus, and others. Mr. Mauro is also a frequent speaker at international conferences, leading academic institutes, and government agencies, including MIT, Stanford, UPenn, the FDA, NASA, and other legal conferences on a global basis. In this episode, Mr. Mauro had shared great insights on industrial design and design ergonomics. So we started with what exactly is industrial design and what was Mr. Mauro's experience in working with famous design luminaries like Raymond Louis and other famous designers. We also spoke on how does ergonomics and human factor sciences play a significant role in industrial design and how could designers take the aid of data to design sustainable products. Mr. Mauro also shared some of his wonderful experiences for designing solutions for NYSE and NASA space shuttles and Mr. Mauro has served as an expert in over 75 major IP cases, so we had discussed on design IPs and how design IPs protect the designer's creativity. We then concluded the show by Mr. Mauro's views on the future of design and the impact designers could have on the metaverse. Hope you guys enjoy this episode and on every Friday, we release new episodes with different creative leaders from around the world to help you better understand different concepts related to design. So don't forget to tune in to Notes of Design every Friday. With that being said, happy designing, everyone. Hi, Charles, welcome to Nodes of Design. It's a pleasure hosting you today on our show. Thank you, happy to be here. So Charles, how was your day so far?
0: It's been fine, it's a little early here in New York, but uh, happy to accommodate the team in India,
1: so no problem. So what was your journey into design and how did you start? And what are your tips to the beginners on how to start?
0: Well, my my, uh, trip into design started um, basically, you know, from the standpoint of uh, childhood, Uh, I always had a, a, a strong interest in technology and designing, building uh, things. I was a model airplane enthusiast, uh, model rockets. Uh, so there was always this desire to understand a, a given problem and create a solution uh, for that problem. So um, I worked, you know, on a number of uh, various projects when I was uh, when I was young. Uh, then I went to the University of Colorado for a year, a uh, little more than a year. Studied uh, math and sculpture there. And uh, while I was taking a course at uh, at the University of Colorado, one of my instructors came in one day with a a bag, a a shopping bag full of uh, catalogs to design schools. And uh, she said to me, uh, because I knew her very well, she said, well, you you have kind of an unusual background in the way you approach problems. Have you ever thought about industrial design? And I said to her, well, what is industrial design? Uh, this was, uh, you know, my freshman year in college, and she said, "Well, here's some catalogs of various design schools. Uh, why don't you look at them and uh, see what you think?" So I took the catalogs home and I looked down, and as soon as I opened the first catalog and read through a few pages, I said, "Oh, this is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is perfect for, uh, you know, what uh, my interests are and my capabilities." So uh, from that point on, um, I stayed at, at University of Colorado a bit longer. I applied to uh, Art Center College of Design in Los Angeles, a uh, very well-known design school at that time. Uh, it's still very well-known. And I um, was accepted at Art Center and uh, got in my car and drove to Los Angeles and uh, finished my degree there and then went on to work for a couple of very famous designers uh, in New York. So that's sort of my journey. My recommendation for those uh, you know interested in design is to Um, Look uh, carefully and uh, you know extensively at the possible educational uh, opportunities for you. Uh, You know today there's uh, many online um, design education courses available um, and of course uh, India and, and many other countries have formal design education spread throughout the entire university system. So my recommendation is to seek the best education that you can um, and work through, uh, you know, your early years very, uh, very hard and hardworking and be very aggressive about it. Uh, design is a very competitive field. Uh, and even if you have a degree from a, uh, a good university or a good design program, you still will have uh, a lot of competition in the in the workplace for uh, obtaining, uh, you know, a good position. So education is it. And uh, also, uh, you know, for those starting out, don't be afraid to ask um Experts or others in the field who you might know uh, could be friends, colleagues, recommendations, uh, mentors. Uh, Ask them for recommendations because you will find that designers in general are very open to helping others. Uh, So uh, feel free to always, uh, you know, get on LinkedIn or other social media formats and send uh, requests uh, to any of the experts that you see there. You'd be amazed who will respond.
1: Thank you so much, Charles, for sharing these wonderful tips with us. So let's begin our episode today with industrial design. So what exactly is industrial design and what was your experience working with Raymond Loewy and other famous designers?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, industrial design as a, as a formal discipline came about essentially uh, in the late 1920s. Uh, the genesis of industrial design uh, in the way in which it's primarily practiced today took place essentially in the United States. Um It's widely regarded that the founding father of industrial design was a famous designer by the name of Raymond Lowy. Uh, The first product that uh, had applied industrial design expertise was the Gestetner uh, duplication machine. This is well-documented part of the history of industrial design, but industrial design as a profession is a discipline where a individual with uh, training and expertise in uh, product aesthetics, how products look physically, Uh, into manufacturing methods and to some extent into usability, uh, approach the design of a product uh, from sort of start to finish, uh, if they're lucky. Uh, And they apply these three disciplines, uh, manufacturing expertise, product aesthetics, and uh, ergonomics and human factors engineering, uh, to the creation of products that are uh, optimized for consumer consumption. And if you look at sort of the trajectory of industrial design and what um, brought about is, is tremendous expansion, you really have to look at the end of the Second World War uh, when um, the American uh, and uh, Allied armies defeated uh, Germany, we were left with a tremendous amount of manufacturing capability in the United States and in Europe, mostly in the United States. And as a result, um, industrial design found a very fertile ground because industrial design is the way in which you can differentiate products of the same category simply by design. So, for example, uh, you know, the automobile industry is a great example of this. Uh, you had Ford and Cadillac and General Motors and uh, Chrysler. And these are you know automobiles, especially at that time and even today, are, are basically the same technology, the same engineering, if you will. Uh, so industrial design became the way in which manufacturers could differentiate their products by the visual appearance and, to the lesser extent, the function of the product, and that is the skill set that designers brought uh, to the um, to capitalism, if you will. I mean, if you look at the the dramatic increase in uh, in, in capitalism post World War II, especially in the United States, you see that the field of industrial design, by and large drove a great deal of that uh, growth by creating differentiated products in the same category. So, you know, basically that's what industrial design is. That's a brief history of uh, how um, industrial design evolved as quickly as it did. Uh, my personal experience uh, early in my career, I was extremely fortunate uh, to have been uh, hired right out of design school by the design firm of Henry Dreyfus Associates in New York. Uh, they moved, moved me to New York Uh, Dreyfus at that time was, uh, in addition to Raymond Lowy's firm, one of the two largest uh, design firms in the world. Uh, Very, very successful firms. And uh, there, I worked on a number of uh, very interesting uh, projects, uh, tractors for John Deere, Polaroid cameras. Polaroid was sort of the Apple computer of that period. Um, And many other uh, very interesting projects. And I developed a very strong Uh, appreciation for industrial design at a very high level. Uh, After, uh, I guess it was about three years at the Dreyfus firm, I was accepted at graduate school at NYU Medical School. And I then went uh, back to graduate school and obtained a graduate degree in human factors engineering and ergonomics, where I studied in the medical school for three years there. The time, uh, toward the time of, My degree was uh, coming forward in in, in graduate school. Uh, I was contacted by the firm of Raymond Lowy International. And as I mentioned, Raymond Lowley was widely regarded as the founding father, one of the founding fathers of uh, the field of industrial design. And uh, they were looking for a designer who had a background, formal background in ergonomics. Of course, I was uh, qualified for that. I went to work for the Raymond Lowy firm. uh, And uh, it was a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. Uh, I was able to manage large projects. Uh, One of those projects uh, which I had uh, primary responsibility for was uh, the design of a series of products that would be produced in the Soviet Union and exported to the West. This was during detente, a famous uh, political uh, period in the relationship between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, I caught the eye of Raymond Lowy himself. I was very fortunate to uh, be designated as personal design assistant on a couple of large projects. I traveled with him personally in Europe and the Soviet Union and uh, was extremely fortunate to have spent uh, considerable time with uh, the founding father himself in the field of industrial design early in my career. And then shortly um, after Raymond Loewy sold his firm, uh, I started my own firm in 1975 and it's been continually in operation since then.
1: Thank you so much, Charles. And it was really inspiring to know. So if you could share us, what were the major learnings that you have received quite early in your career while working with Raymond Loy?
0: Well, I think the primary learning is that industrial design is a profession, first and foremost, of commerce. It's not a profession of art. um, And that your primary responsibility as an industrial designer is always to your client. And If you listen carefully to your client, um, you can oftentimes solve problems that are beyond those which are explicitly stated, Um, you know, in in the product brief, for example. Uh, Raymond Lowy was was famous for his ability to understand broad, complex problems. Uh, I remember, you know, many times where he could integrate information from many, many different sources into a very clearly articulated statement for his design teams. I've seen him, you know, many times uh, go into a design review with his designers where there might be 150, 200 drawing concepts, you know, pinned up on a wall in front of him. And he could walk down that wall in, you know, one time and he would pick out the three best solutions. And he knew why those were the three best solutions. And I think the greatest, gift that I learned from him, the greatest gift he gave me, was to always look at the big picture and understand those key aspects of solving a design problem that are important for the client. In some cases, you want a product that's aesthetically much more pleasing. Some cases, you want a product that's much more functional. In other cases, you want a product that is uh, easier to manufacture. And of course, industrial design as a profession always thinks about all of those, but it's the way in which Raymond Lowy could weight those variables that um, I I had the highest respect for and probably uh, was
1: the greatest benefit to me personally. Thank you so much, Charles. So how do ergonomics and human factor science play a significant role in industrial design?
0: Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, Industrial designers uh, in their formal education do obtain some uh, preliminary coursework in ergonomics. Usually it's maybe one course, uh, maybe possibly two. Um, So industrial designers come to the problem space, the solution space, with some understanding of human factors, engineering, or ergonomics. And of course, they apply their own intuition to the solution of ergonomic problems. For certain types of problems, that's uh, certainly good enough. Um, There is, however, an entirely separate field of research and education called human factors engineering science or ergonomics. And individuals uh, who are schooled in that discipline uh, go on to obtain either a master's or a PhD. Uh, I have a master's degree. And in that discipline, you study uh, very extensive human information processing, uh, anthropometry, neuroscience, um, different types of study design, how you design an experiment to determine whether a product is properly designed or not. Um, so that's a really a separate um, discipline. And in fact, in the United States uh, and other countries around the world, you will see that they're generally two professional organizations and they're separate. For example, in the United States, the Industrial Designer Society of America represents industrial design And the human factors and ergonomics society in the U.S. represents the human factors professionals or ergonomics professionals. So now what's important is that design is becoming increasingly complex as a professional discipline. And the need to understand the underlying neuroscience and the cognitive science of how products impact our decision making is becoming more and more important. So what we see now is an is a integration of, you have industrial design over here and uh, human factors engineering, they're coming together um, in a much more structured way. So you'll see companies like Apple or Facebook or Amazon have uh, entire teams of human factors experts work along with their uh, industrial design teams. And I know you work for Microsoft and you you obviously know that Microsoft has a huge human factors engineering team and they work with their industrial designers. So, these two science, these two disciplines are coming together. And um, in my field, my focus uh, has been for the last three decades or so, maybe even from the very beginning, on the integration of professional human factors, engineering, and ergonomics with design. So I guess I would consider myself more of a design scientist than uh, strictly an industrial designer, although I'm obviously very skilled in industrial design as well. So that's how they're sort of coming together. And the reason they're coming together is very important. And that is the problem is becoming much more complex to deal with uh, from the standpoint of usability, sustainability, um, and um, development,
1: cost of development. Thank you so much, Charles. So how could we take the aid of data to design sustainable products?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, industrial design, is having a greater impact on consumer consumption than ever before. Uh, We're producing more products, they're better products. Uh, Design is also contributing in a a probably profound way to the lack of sustainability of those products because many uh, uh, product designers today, they think about sustainability, but they don't actually have the tools or the expertise or the integration into the product development process to truly impact sustainability i think industrial design is is in a good place from the standpoint of producing consumer increasing consumer consumption but it's not in a good place from the standpoint of enhancing sustainability either you know, circular design or um, design for for recycling, all of those issues, which have been around for decades. Um, Industrial design as a profession has really failed, frankly, to bridge the gap between design and those other disciplines in a way that has actually impacted the quality of the environment and certainly sustainability. So, how would we use data? Data is a famous saying, you know, saying that scientists are not in the data business, they're in the information business. And data is the raw information that comes in. And the data gets transferred to information when it's used by human beings to make decisions that are productive. So data becomes information when we use it. And how, is, how can design use information uh, you know, much more effectively to address some of these you know, incredibly important and difficult global problems? The way in which that would happen is that industrial design needs to develop a better vocabulary for communicating with researchers. Um, It's very unusual for design program to have a course in, uh, for example, statistics, like how do you actually, as a designer, read a formal science uh, scientific report? Uh, Do you know the difference between a p-value and an ANOVA and different types of statistical programs? Um, How do you know how to assess quality of the data that you're getting that may be very helpful in adjusting uh, addressing the problems of su- sustainability and other issues so it's this lack of dialogue formal dialogue between design and research and big data that I think is the critical missing link today and would be profoundly helpful and important for a formal field of design science to develop which would be that bridge between design and formal science, whether it's neuroscience, cognitive science, uh, environmental
1: science, you know, any of those disciplines. Thank you so much, Charles. So if you could share some experience of yours in designing solutions for NYSC and NASA Space shuttles? Yeah,
0: sure. Well, as I said, most of my work is, is primarily design research. So I, I uh, end up um, supporting the design teams um, and creating unique research that, uh, you know, address specifically uh, problems of interest or unusual complexity. So, I mean, one of the projects uh, that I worked on a number of years ago was the design of the primary trading interfaces uh, for the New York Stock Exchange, the world's largest equities trading market. Um, Industrial designers, I should point out, uh, have have historically uh, designed physical products and have also dealt with the design of computer-based, screen-based products as well. Of course, today you see a sort of bifurcation has taken place. Industrial designers tend to work more on physical products and there's a new discipline called UX design, user experience design, And these individuals tend to deal more with uh, screen-based sorts of products. Now, that's kind of a gross generalization, but in the time, uh, you know, when I was uh, very active on Wall Street. I did both of those disciplines because I was trained both in man-machine interfaces, human-computer interfaces and product design. So for the New York Stock Exchange, the the problem was essentially that the trading volume was uh, developing at such a high rate, it was increasing at such a high rate year over year that the New York Stock Exchange was going to have to build a new trading floor, a very large trading floor in lower Manhattan. Extremely expensive multi-billion dollar project um, and The problem that they came to my firm with was, is there a way to improve the human factors engineering performance of the trading process in such a way that they would not have to build a new trading floor? So this was a roughly a three-year project we spent about uh, roughly six months um, on the trading floor with brokers uh, and various uh, job functions that uh, are active on the trading floor when stocks are traded Uh, we developed a mental model of how the trading process is executed and then developed a series of uh, concepts for how we could uh, dramatically improve the throughput uh, the trading volume of the uh, equities trading process on the trading floor And most importantly, I would say, reduce the error. Um, In a typical trading day on the New York Stock Exchange, they have uh, had at that point an error rate of about 3%, 5%. So that, you know, in, in real dollar terms, is hundreds of millions of dollars a day. So the problem was essentially how to improve efficiency, get greater uh, trading volume, and how to reduce the errors. So uh, that project involved creation of, a, as I said, the mental model, the trading model, if you will, how individuals interacted with the trading process, and then deciding where technology could be inserted into the trading process to improve efficiency. And uh, we developed a series of um, trading simulations, screen-based trading simulations, handheld devices. We build a trading uh, trading simulation lab uh, there at the New York Stock Exchange and ran a, a series of uh, complex trading exercises where we simulated the performance of actual trading floor volume, utilizing uh, screen-based interfaces. And and I would say that uh, prior to the New York Stock Exchange retaining uh, our firm and my team, um, two other very large consulting firms, uh, including IBM, had been tasked with this problem and had failed. So it was sort of a last ditch effort and on the part of the New York Stock Exchange before they decided to build a new trading floor to utilize human factors, engineering, and design expertise to try and solve this problem. So long story short, um, we developed a um, solution for the problem uh, and identified uh, a methodology for testing the, the solution in a, in a real environment to validate uh, the performance improvements. The most interesting part of the whole project though was determining how to get the trading floor to adopt the new technology, because it was well understood that the new system was going to be much, much more efficient. But the trading floor is heavily um, governed by its own social structure. Certain brokers, certain traders have a tremendous amount of social uh, currency. Uh, They are the traders who are the most respected. They make the most money. and we knew that even though we had a system that was from a performance point of view was much better and would reduce the errors into the areas the domains that we were concerned about there was no way that that system was going to be adopted unless we took into account the culture of the trading floor and so we designed a series uh, of uh, experiments where we identified the key players on the trading floor, we brought them into the into the process during the whole development uh, period. Uh, and we uh, had them essentially uh, adopt the system first. So the, the individuals with the highest social currency adopted the system on the trading floor earliest. And their simple process of adoption led to the very rapid propagation of the solution on the trading floor. Without that, we would have had the best solution. We'd have no implementation. So the story there, and the one that I'm so proud of, is the understanding that it's the culture of adoption that drives acceptance, uh, regardless of how good your solution is. And this is, uh, you know, a key insight that I learned actually from Raymond Lowe. So that's one example, and that's probably the best, uh, you
1: know, that I have currently. Thank you so much, Charles. So, what's your opinion on the future of design, and would design have an enormous impact on metaverse? The future of design. I think uh, design is it has a tremendous future. Um, whether whether
0: design has has a responsible, positive impact on uh, global warming, on sustainability, you know, on some of these other issues. Issues on uh, income disparity, really global you know, issues that are vitally important to our our future on a, you know, on a systemic level. I think that's very much in question right now because while design in its early phases uh, had had tremendous leaders, uh, Raymond Lowy, Norman Bel Geddes, Henry Dreyfus, uh, Charles Eames, you know, tremendous designers who were visionary in their large. Scope view of how to utilize design. Today we have no such we have no such uh, leaders uh, in the field of design. Design is very fragmented. Uh, so I think design, as I said, I think it will continue to increase the consumption of technology on a on a massive scale. Uh, I don't see it having uh, a commensurate impact on large vital issues long term without some major change in um, both the Structure of design, taking into account much better use of science uh, and the development of leadership, uh, you know, at the highest level for designers, especially in the educational space. It's so so important, Ah, metaverse. So it turns out actually, uh, my firm has done uh, probably the largest study, uh, behavioral study of avatars in the metaverse environments um, to date. We looked at um, over a million individuals in various metaverse environments. Uh, so we we have a profoundly deep understanding of uh, how the metaverse impacts human behavior, and it's quite startling actually. Uh, there's a you know a huge amount of uh, venture capital money being funded uh, being channeled now into metaverse development, and of course. Um, Facebook has changed its name to Meta and has its, uh, you know, its new metaverse. We don't see a future for this because, um, and this is based on objective research conducted uh, in the actual metaverses looking at the impact of human behavior. I do not think design is going to solve the metaverse problem uh, at all. Uh, the problem that metaverse has is that as individuals adopt virtual uh, avatar behaviors or personalities, their behaviors change the way in which they interact with people changes. We don't, uh, our, our research team, and in fact, we've, we've written a, a significant uh, blog post on this and research. If anyone's interested in that, in that research, uh, we'll, we'll post it at the bottom of the podcast. Uh, but uh, I do not think design is going to have a, a big impact on the metaverse um, because let's keep in mind what the metaverse really is. I mean, it's a translation of the physical world to the virtual world. So what does that mean? That means that those who develop virtual uh, virtual worlds, the metaverse, if you will, adopt the physical world as a mental model and as a physical model. So what do we see in the metaverse? We see a Tesla that looks just like the Tesla in the real world, right? Uh, so design is not the uh, is not going to be a primary, uh, you know, a source for improving the metaverse. What will improve the metaverse dramatically? Is much better technology front to back, uh, and uh, very robust uh, behavior tracking and behavior management because there's a lot of behaviors that take take uh, place in the metaverse that are you would never consider uh, take undertaking in the, in the in the real world. So we're not uh, we're not strong in the metaverse uh, in its current configuration. I don't think design will have any impact. What I do think will have an impact on the metaverse as intellectual property and design patent infringement. Metaverse developers who take products from the physical world, regardless of what that product is, and implement it in in the virtual world, are subject to intellectual property infringement, copying, if you will. So that doesn't change in the virtual world, and that's going to be a big surprise to a lot of uh,
1: metaverse developers. Thank you so much, uh, Charles. So wanted to know, like, you, you've you been an advisor for more than 70 plus patents, and uh, what's your opinion on how could designers could take an idea to patent, and what's the process of understanding a patent as a solvable product or not?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful question. Um, we, we actually have a very extensive um, blog post on intellectual property for designers. Uh, I'll include that in the, in the link as well. And it explains the different types of intellectual property that's open to a designer, whether it's design patents, utility patents, it's trademark, trade dress, uh, you know, copyright, um, intellectual property, and its its ability to protect design uh, has been dramatically diluted and diminished uh, over the last decade uh, in the United States. Uh, the reason why this has happened is is actually very interesting and and uh, not well known at all in the design community. Intellectual property uh, framework for protecting the visual design of products is design patents, and it turns out that uh, design patent education or intellectual property education in the in the design education system is completely impoverished. Uh, we did a study, something like 94% of all design schools have no courses in intellectual property. That remaining 6% uh, have at most uh, two lectures in any given year on intellectual property. So designers are inter- entering the market with no understanding of IP. So they create products um let's say for example you create a product on kickstarter what they don't realize is that there's an entire industry that does nothing but just sit on kickstarter every day looking for products to knock off because designers don't protect themselves and kickstarter or the other the other uh you know generation type of sites uh, concept generation sites do not care about your ip at all they care about the credit cards going into the system so what's happened to design ip over the last decade is that there's a there's a a conflict, if you will, between the design community, individuals like myself who are experts in design IP. Believe it or not, a large panel of law school professors in the United States. These professors are against IP of almost any type, and they have decided uh, to draw a beat, if you will, on design path. Gradually, over the last decade, eroded away through the filing of various uh, amicus briefs and participation in, for example, the Supreme Court case in Apple v. Samsung, they've diluted the impact of design patents. So what we see now is at the Supreme Court level and the federal circuit level and the district court level, decisions being made about design patents and design patent infringement that has dramatically diluted the power of, of IP for design. And this is the fault of the design community because we should have been much more vigilant and we should have resources dedicated supporting design IP and making sure that it's stronger than ever and that we have not done and it's it's going to have a massive impact uh, long term on design um, on a global basis because without design IP you can produce a product uh, you know in California on Kickstarter and it can be duplicated Shipped and sold in the United States before you can even produce your first prototype. The world is, is changed and design IP has gotten uh, much less rigorous. Very unfortunate. Too bad to end on this, you know.
1: <laughs> That's very interesting. Thank you so much, Charles, for sharing all these wonderful insights with us. So could you please share with us how does your day look like? Any interesting stories? Oh, well,
0: yeah. Uh, my day starts, uh, <laughs> I have a distributed team. Uh, I used to have a, a much larger office in New York uh, with COVID, uh, the onset of COVID. We uh, shut down our physical office and set up, a, a, my whole team is virtual now. So we always have a morning call. It uh, usually starts around 8.30 in the morning. Um, and we discuss our uh, upcoming projects. Most of our work today is um, on testing medical devices for FDA approval. Uh, so we do very rigorous uh, human factors, engineering testing for those types of products. So a lot of our work is in that category. So we have a morning meeting. Uh, generally, my staff, uh, you know, I, I subscribe to the uh, to the uh, policy that always hire people who are smarter than you are, which I've done. Uh, so I have great uh, young researchers, uh, very, uh, very capable and obviously more experienced staff as well. So, you know, we we go through our day. And our day is basically a combination of uh, communicating uh, using Slack, uh, Zoom, uh, and um, conducting studies and then analyzing the data from those studies, uh, utilize, utilizing statistical methods that provide reliable insights into actual product performance. So um, I guess the greatest uh, you know, sort of insight that I would have about how things go today is that We've always had clients all over the world, uh, but now clients don't seem to sleep. I mean, we have we have a client in the Philippines, uh, you know, and we have clients in India, and we have clients in in uh, Europe, and Japan, and the West Coast of uh, the U.S. and it's it's a completely live environment today. I think this is probably the only benefit of COVID, if there is one, is that uh, the integration with clients is now much more fluid than it was before. And of course, my my day is made when I when my researchers bring me research statistics data that shows true insight that we can give to the client that says this is something you had not thought of, and this is going to make your design solution much more productive and more successful in the marketplace. And You know,
1: that makes my day for sure. Thank you so much, Charles. So we'll conclude this show by you recommending three favorite books of yours and also people who inspired you the most in this space. Okay. Well,
0: I happen to have the books here, but they're they're also listed. I think uh, a book that every designer should read is, uh, it's called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. It's a wonderful book. It's not about design. It's about how the human mind works and it's extremely well done. Very, very uh, understandable. For anyone just starting in design who wants a more, uh, you know, more of a research based approach, um, I can't help but recommend uh, Don Norman's The Design of Everyday Things. Uh, Don Norman and I go way back. We don't always agree. Sometimes we vehemently disagree. But uh, Don's book, The Design of Everyday Things, is a seminal piece of work. For sure. And the last book I would recommend uh, is not a book well-known in the design community. Uh, it's by Raymond Lowy. It comes from my library. These All three of these books will be in the uh, subject line below. Uh, this is a book uh, by the title Never Leave Well Enough Alone. And this book uh, is probably still one of the best overviews of design and the relationship between design and clients. It looks like it was aside for the examples. It could have been written today. Uh, so those are the three books: one on the brain, one on things, and one on the founder of industrial design, Raymond Loewy. Uh, I, I have to say Raymond Lloyd. I, I mean, without question. Um, I traveled with him. I flew with him on flights. Uh, you know, I spent many hours with him. And people. In the design profession, and thought of Raymond Lowy as a sort of uh, only a stylist. He was a you know a person who only made products uh, attractive visually. Um, but they're dead wrong about that. I mean, he was a an ardent functionalist um, and had a tremendous mind for functionality and uh, loved research. Actually, um, when I when I went to work for him, I had an office. And I had all my books from, from graduate school there my research books and I, uh, I came in uh, uh, on the weekend to work uh, you know one time because I had a project that was due and I, I walked into my office and I noticed several of my books were missing these are all research books right and uh, so I thought what, what happened to my books you know somebody stole my books how could this be couple of days go by, you know, and Raymond Loewy's secretary comes back and she's got this big pile of my books. And she and she said, oh, Mr. Loewy, he wanted you to have your books back. And I said, well, he took my books? She said, yeah, he he loved your books. They're all about research. It, you know, he was reading your books. So that's what Raymond Loewy was really all about. He Unbelievably inquisitive, wonderful mind. And, you know, he's been given short shift uh, by the design profession for decades. And, simply wasn't
1: accurate. Thank you so much, Charles, for sharing all these wonderful insights and great knowledge with us. We are looking forward to host you again in our upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Oh, well, there's many others who have more to say than me. So good, good day and thank you very much and uh, good luck.